Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Scott McCartney is made possible with the support of Pratt & Whitney. Pratt & Whitney is committed to working smarter, cleaner, and greener today for a more sustainable tomorrow. Learn more at prattwhitney.com. And by Dohop. Dohop is revolutionizing travel connectivity. Learn how to unlock unlimited connections simply at dohop.com. We also welcome your business's support. Info at airlinesconfidential.com. Welcome to Airlines Confidential. I'm Scott McCartney, and I'm pondering some big questions this week, like why Delta Airlines had a plane sitting in 114-degree heat for three hours without adequate air conditioning, and which movie to see first, Oppenheimer or Barbie? Ben Baldanza, where are you on the Barbieheimer question? Well, Scott, I hate to admit this, but I'm on about 2018 when it comes to seeing new movie releases. (laughs) So if I were to see one of these, it would definitely be Oppenheimer because that just looks fascinating to me. But I have to admit, if I'm on a flight in a couple of years and I see Barbie there, I'm probably going to watch it as a guilty pleasure. (laughs) It does sound like the perfect airplane movie. Yes, but more importantly than that, I'm hungry right now, so I'm eager to talk to Jens Kulin, the president of Gate Group North America, which includes Gate Gourmet. We're going to talk airline food and what could be better, which leaves us another big question to ponder. Scott, are you a chicken or pasta guy when you're in fight? And yes, I too am wondering what happened to unlucky Delta Flight 555 and the attention it has gotten. What happened in Vegas this time did not stay in Vegas, nor should it. Despite airline promises that things would run well this summer, and my belief that they should run well, there sure have been some ugly problems that have been painful for passengers. The industry clearly is still struggling with many aspects of operations as the post-pandemic rebuilding goes on. No doubt. Well, Ben, I'm Oppenheimer all the way. Before I even started focusing on the airline industry, I was part of a national reporting team at the Associated Press, and I teamed up with a wonderful colleague to do a book called Trinity's Children, which looked at how the military and nuclear weapons changed a slice of the country from southern New Mexico and the Trinity site up through Los Alamos, Cheyenne Mountain, Rocky Flats, and the MX missile silos all the way up in Montana. It's all along Interstate 25, which we called the Nuclear Highway. And I did a lot of reporting on Oppenheimer, on the Manhattan Project, and on the nuclear labs today in Albuquerque and Los Alamos. It's an incredible story. And so is, frankly, the story of Delta Flight 555 on July 17th. The plane sat in 114-degree heat for three hours, and the cabin got so hot that people fell ill, and paramedics took at least five people off of the 20-year-old 757-300. 
That much we know. But there are many, many questions, and Delta hasn't said anything about the causes of the problem. The Department of Transportation is investigating. Ben, airplane cabins heat up quickly, and air conditioning systems really aren't adequate for extreme heat on the ground. Engines at idle don't have enough bleed air to provide adequate cooling until takeoff, when they're turning much faster and pushing a whole lot more air through. The auxiliary power unit produces more airflow and pressure, and so one question is whether the APU was functioning on this aircraft. If it wasn't working, why did the crew accept the airplane and leave the gate in those conditions at shortly before 2 p.m.? It wasn't going to get cooler on the tarmac. You couldn't outweigh the heat. It's unclear if they knew there would be a delay before takeoff. If Atlanta was a mess, why go out and sit in the heat? Or if you're in line for takeoff and suddenly a ground stop is issued that you never expected, maybe you better return to the gate as soon as the cabin temperature gets uncomfortable. The tarmac delay rule, by the way, requires working toilets and comfortable cabin temperatures during a delay. Apparently, the plane did make one gate return to let passengers off, but passengers were, as they always are, given the horrible choice of, you can get off, but if you do, it may be several days before you can get out of Las Vegas. That's not an option, it's a threat. Lots of other planes left Las Vegas without incident that day. These terrible situations are so often the result of a series of multiple bad decisions and bad luck. If the APU wasn't functioning and you knew it was 114 degrees outside, bad decision to leave. If you found out after departure there would be a long delay and knew the cabin temperature was uncomfortable, bad decision to stay out there. And it's not just the crew. There's a whole operations center in Atlanta that is supposed to be monitoring and a dispatcher with shared responsibility. No one wants to cancel a flight, but sometimes you have to. Scott, I'm eager to hear what Delta says about this. Obviously, they didn't think they were going to be waiting three hours on the tarmac, even if they thought they were going to wait a bit. And clearly, this idea that maybe we can get there is something you want your crews to think. But in that kind of heat, it's really amazing that it escalated to this kind of problem. Delta's, I'm sure, doing a real deep dive on this and figuring out what's the role of the dispatch center, of the crew on the plane, of the crew in the airport, of the maintenance team on the ground who know what's working and what's not. What I really hope, Scott, is that this tarmac delay isn't indicative of how the rest of the summer is going to run. I hope it is a unique event on a really hot day in Vegas and doesn't sort of suggest that the industry is still caught in this operational mess because there are more people working and they're better trained this year than last year. And all the focus on international, which really buoyed United's earnings this week, all of that suggests 
maybe there's a little less capacity domestically. So there's a lot of structural things that suggest the industry should operate better. But when something like this happens, it brings everything back to square zero, doesn't it? Yeah, it sure does. And I think even more than that, this is yet another case where the industry really needs to take the initiative here and explain what happened and explain specific fixes. Uh, Because the danger here is that you get Congress or the administration making changes to the tarmac delay rule or imposing new regulations or whatever it might be to try and regulate this kind of situation out of existence. Um, and that can have a whole lot of implications. This is seems to me clearly a case where Delta needs to step up and say, okay, this is exactly what happened and this is why it's never going to happen again and lesson learned, but we don't need a permanent rule that's going to change travel for everybody because of this one flight. I really think there needs to be discussion about that. And, and of course, <laughs> when Delta wants to come on Airlines Confidential and explain this, we are ready for it. Of course we are. And Scott, we both have friends who for decades have talked about the industry not doing itself any favors by behaving in ways that bring on regulation. And here's another example of something not to let happen, just like you said. Yeah. Yeah, no, it was really true with the tarmac delay rule. There were multiple examples of 10-hour, 14-hour delays, horrible conditions that passengers were were put through. And the industry response was, uh, we're, we, we can't do much about it or whatever. And Ray LaHood said, you know, that's not good enough. Here, and here's a rule. And he was absolutely right. I think the tarmac delay rule has worked well. It forced airlines to improve their operations, and they did. Uh, I'm not sure one flight out of Vegas with air conditioning problems needs to result in regulation, but I do think it's an example where if the industry doesn't address it, it's going to be addressed for them. I think you're right. In other news, both United and American reported very strong second quarter earnings as expected. Both, and particularly United, benefited from a strong rebound in international travel. I saw Scott Kirby on TV this week, and he reiterated a point I've heard him say before, that they didn't return any wide-body equipment during the pandemic, and they're benefiting from that now because they have the fleet to fly the international flights. United reported earnings of more than $5 a share, which was a full dollar higher than expectations. Americans' earnings were very good and above expectations, but not quite up to inflated Wall Street expectations. 
both airlines said demand just continues to be really strong. On another note on American United, Scott, United agreed to a new contract with its pilots with really big pay raises. So big that American's pilots, which agreed to a new deal back in May, now find themselves behind United. American's pilot union says their new deal is about 2% below new deals at United. And so the union asked American CEO Robert Isom to reopen negotiations. Isom not only agreed, but said they would match the United rates and that the revised American deal would cost them $1 billion more over the life of the contract. It's fascinating how everything falls in line, Ben. Another piece to the pilot contract puzzle that I think will fall into place soon will be the Southwest pilots. Once they see what the Delta, United, and American contracts pay, they will most likely reach a deal. It's not only about management seeing what the market is and what pay will have to be, it's the pilots being confident they are getting all they can and won't be lower paid than pilots at other big airlines. Everyone wants to be the best paid, but even more importantly, perhaps most importantly, no one wants to agree to be lower paid. And Ben, the House of Representatives passed a bipartisan FAA reauthorization bill that stripped out a lot of more controversial changes that had been proposed. It would, however, raise the maximum age for pilots to 67 from 65, something the Airline Pilots Association opposes in an effort to relieve some current pilot shortage. There's more money for training more air traffic controllers. It doesn't have aggressive consumer protections that the White House sought. It doesn't add any takeoff or landing slots to Washington's Reagan National Airport for new long-distance flights outside the airport's silly 1,250-mile perimeter rule. And, I think sadly, it doesn't allow for more hours of simulator time in the 1,500-hour flight time requirement for new hire pilots. Simulator training can be highly effective. You can throw emergencies at a student pilot that you could never do in an aircraft. You can create low-visibility experience that often is rare in the real world. But honestly, I don't think Congress should be writing regulations for pilot training requirements in the first place. None of this is a done deal. The bill goes to the Senate, where things like raising the pilot retirement age will not be as popular. Once the Senate approves its version, there will have to be a compromise to work out differences, and it may be September before there is a new five-year FAA reauthorization. Well, this is how the sausage is made, right, Scott? Yeah. In, in terms of the age limitation, I support moving the pilot's rate to 67, but they can't just do that. What a 35-year-old or 45-year-old needs in terms of regular medical checkups is different than what a 60-something person needs. So along with raising the rate, they could also modify 
not only how often they're getting medical checks, but maybe the depth of the medical checks. What do you think of that, Scott? Yeah, I think that's right. I think, you know, the concern is not just health. The concern is uh, sharpness and memory. And and there's there's a lot to this. Um, You know, this is why I think there should be study. Uh, and I think I think there should be some science here in, yeah, we feel confident that a uh, 67-year-old pilot is perfectly fine to fly, um, but here's what we need to check, and, and let's be uh, smart about it rather than just having Congress um, wave a magic wand and get into uh, regulation, regulations that it, it really doesn't know much about. I think that's right. There are 67-year-old pilots who are more fit than some 58-year-old pilots find. So it's not just a number. It's what is this person and what can they do? Right. And at the same time, there are folks in their 60s who start having memory issues or attention issues or, or whatever. And there ought to be a system to check for that. I think that's exactly right. Well, Airlines Confidential is sponsored by Pratt & Whitney. At Pratt & Whitney, the pursuit of more sustainable aviation is foundational. For decades, Pratt & Whitney has been at the forefront of revolutionary advancements in aircraft propulsion technology. And by working smarter, cleaner, and greener today, they are committed to supporting the aviation industry in its goal of reaching net zero CO2 emissions by 2050. Learn more about Pratt & Whitney's smarter technology, cleaner fuel, and greener business at prattwhitney.com. We also want to thank Doohop, which is revolutionizing travel connectivity. Doohop is a travel technology provider enabling airlines to expand their networks, offer more connectivity, create additional partnerships, and focus on improving the customer experience with more offers, services, and travel options. Airlines benefit from generating additional revenue, lower costs, and maintaining full customer ownership. Plus, in the event of travel disruptions, Doohop works with airlines and offers assistance in helping passengers reach their final destination. Visit Doohop.com. That's D-O-H-O-P.com. Now let's welcome Jens Kulin, the North American president of Gate Group. Jens Kulin is president of North America for Gate Group which includes caterer Gate Gourmet, as well as onboard retail, about 80 lounges, and other services for airlines and travel companies. In 2022, Gate Group served approximately 520 million airline passengers through more than 300 aviation customers on six continents. It catered about 3.3 million flights. In North America, American, Delta, United, JetBlue, and Air Canada are all customers. Listeners will recall that our friend Dave Siegel served as CEO and chairman of Gate Group from 2004 to 2009. Jens is based in Gate's North American headquarters in Reston, Virginia. 
He has been with Gate Group since 2015, first based in the Zurich headquarters in an accounting role. He was most recently the North American Chief Financial Officer before becoming president. Jens, it's a pleasure to have you join us on Airlines Confidential, and I'm sure we're in for a yummy conversation. Let's start with some basics on Gate Group and its businesses that travelers might see. Gate Group supplies catering to a large portion of the industry, and you have an in-flight retailing business as well as lounges. Give us a summary of what businesses you have in North America and how far the reach of Gate Group is in air travel here. Yeah, thanks, Scott. Thanks for having me. It's it's really an honor to be here, and I'm really excited. So, um, uh, yeah. So, what are we going? What are we doing? I mean, we are um, uh, the leading in-flight caterer, um, not only globally but also in in uh, the North, North American region. As you rightfully said, we are we are doing everything. Um, and anything that happens in an aircraft um, when it comes to food and beverage services. Everything that is in a galley is provided by us. And, and I'm sure um, if you have been flying out of any given airport here in this country or in this, in this region, you have been enjoying our services. We're, we are serving airlines in, in their hub locations uh, like L.A. or Chicago, um, we are serving uh, mostly inter- international airlines in certain other airports like Boston or JFK. But we are also going out into, into smaller areas in the country like, like Jacksonville or the Cincinnati's or the like. So uh, it's, it's, a, it's a big operation um, uh, from uh, soup to nuts. Well, Jens, the whole process of serving a tasty hot meal safely to someone just hours after it leaves the kitchen and to the harsh, dry environment of the airplane, that's got to be a real challenge for you. What are the big hurdles in serving meals on airplanes? Yeah, um, Ben, that's a good point that you bring up here. It's indeed um, a little bit of a masterpiece of, of logistics and, and, um, and supply chain. I mean, food safety, you brought it up already um, to a certain degree, is, is key uh, from the product that comes in at our inbound dock um, all the way through requisitioning it, uh, preparing it, and then getting it in uh, chill temperatures um, to the aircraft on time. We have, we have certain windows with that. Um, how we can do this uh, safely, and this is a big focus for us. It involves uh, airport security, uh, of course. Mostly we are operating off airports, uh, uh, Tarmark, but um, in a lot of cases we are. But either way, um, we have to do all the background checks for our 12,000 employees in North America on all of this. And then, as I already said, like supply chain um, is always a challenge, um, even though uh, we are absolutely experts in, in handling this, as you can imagine. And then um, I'm just looking out the window. Uh, IROPS uh, are a, a big uh, impediment to us because we are l- literally the last ones touching an aircraft. And therefore, um, it's always uh, a good chance that, that we are the ones uh, making it delay or not. But we are very focused on our, our high performance uh, when it comes to uh, on-time info. That's really interesting. You've got a background in banking, accounting, and consulting. Any surprises for you when you got into the kitchen and learned more about how the airline catering business really works? 
Yeah, Scott, I, I can tell you um, a lot of surprises. Even I didn't come in immediately out of this and was in, in the food industry before that already, but still a lot of surprises. I mean, it's, it's to me, it's, it's really a fascinating masterpiece of, of logistics and, and, uh, and supply chain, as I said before already. The, the, the attention to detail um, that is, is required to really execute this properly, the things that you don't see that run behind the scenes, um, you, I, everyone here and, and every passenger the, takes it for granted when you get into the aircraft that a beverage cart and a, and a food cart comes down the aisle and you get your service. And, and there is so much, uh, again, attention to detail and passion of our 12,000 employees in North America in there and, and the interrelations between all of that. There's, there's very few chances to get it wrong. So, I mean, we... We have so high focus on, on high performance and, and on time in full performance, kitchen readiness times. It's, uh, it's really amazing. The airline recovery worldwide, Jens, has been amazing last year and this year. The airlines didn't do that good a job of recovering as quickly. They did okay shutting down quickly, when the pandemic started, but got a bit surprised when the rebound was so strong. What's it been like for your business? Has it been difficult ramping up again so quickly? Uh, ben, of course. I mean, this um, this has been a rodeo for us as well. Absolutely. We, of course, um, had to let a lot of people go at a certain point in time, or at least curtail their hours that they work. Uh, we were very grateful um, uh, to receive government funding um, big time here in the U.S., but also in Canada and other places of the world that kept us afloat at the time. But then to your point, ramping back up, which happened earlier here in the U.S. than anywhere else in the world, that was a real challenge for us. And this challenge already started somewhere in late 21, um, got a little bit sidetracked by the Omicron uh, period over the, the, the year change. But then last year, with already fairly high flight and PAX volumes, it was really, really challenging for us um, to get the, the right people in, in, into the right places again, because a lot of them had just changed jobs or left for something else. So, so we were really um, challenged with seniority levels, particularly in the mid-range of seniority. But, uh, but this year is up for a much better start and and we are basically really hitting it on all cylinders everywhere. Um, we have doubled down on recruiting and, um, and are basically back to, to pre-COVID staffing levels. It's um, now basically uh, focuses on training and retention of these people because it's always a, a, a difficult job. But uh, we are really, um, we are really grateful um, for, for all of these people that come back because people are basically at the heart of our business and, it, and it's very heartening to see um, in, in all of my travels uh, how passionate partially 30, 40 plus year um, um, uh, staff and employees are still doing their day-to-day -day job. It's, it's really fascinating. Hmm. We used to hear a lot about celebrity chefs at airlines and a sort of continual one-upsmanship carrier over carrier in food. On the whole, are airlines still upping their spend on meal service or are they now cutting back as uh, they're pressured by increasing labor costs and 
and fuel and other things um, pressuring the bottom line? I personally feel that um, that they are indeed upping their game when it comes to meal services and quality of meals, the diversification of of, of classes um, within an aircraft uh, shows you that, and their focus on the front of the plane shows that as well. They they clearly realize with the um, vigorous return of particularly international airlines, be it Middle East or European or Asian, that um, there is another product that is introduced to this market, and, and they have to, to a certain degree, respond to that. And, and in my classical example, um, Scott always is take a take a business uh, traveler um, from JFK that regularly goes east, say to Heathrow, and west, say to LA or San Francisco. It's basically the same flight length, but um, a very different meal uh, service or a meal and beverage service, even in the same class or comparable class. And if that person and individual is is, is traveling on the same airline and is a frequent flyer of theirs, then it's, um, they really have to balance this out. And I, there's not too few people that do this on a regular basis. Hmm. Just, to, just um, I'm curious, uh, do, do you see some carriers stepping up their game more than others right now? Um, who's, who, who's, who's pushing you harder? I would, uh, I would, of course, I don't think there's anyone pushing it harder than the other. They're pushing themselves very, very hard themselves. As you know, we are basically serving all of them. We are in, in a lot of cases doing also menu design for them in certain um, areas, markets, or locations. And I wouldn't want to call one particular carrier necessarily out. Uh, they are all looking at each other. What does the other carrier do? And uh, are trying to, to basically meet their customers um, with a with a very good meal and beverage service. Well, you can't turn on TV today, Jens, without hearing the word inflation. <laughs> it's affecting our food prices, fuel prices, labor for the industry, and many other aspects of running any business. How has inflation affected the gate group? Are you seeing smaller portions or less expensive ingredients? Years ago, Bob Crandall made history by talking about how much money he saved by removing the olive from a salad. Well, you know, inflation is, is nothing that affects us at all. I know, I'm kidding. So, yeah. um, um, no, of course. I mean, um, all of the the supply chain issues basically have two uh, triggers, right? One is availability of product, and the other one is 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 price of product. So, I would say the industry and we particularly are innovative enough to find ways to not delinquish or to reduce the service that that is delivered. Meaning. You can basically, either on availability or price of product, exchange certain products in a meal easily without really uh, changing the quality of the service. That's one piece. The other piece is we are experiencing um, the inflationary environment as the airlines are experiencing the inflationary environment. And that goes all ways. And you can also see this in the ticket prices. So um, we we have come with basically all of the major airlines to an agreement 
that these inflationary items and these inflationary costs that are not in our control and not in their control either are effectively either a pass-through or a, a joint mitigation. So that really helps um, also um, supporting this. But clearly, all of this happens with a time lag and all of this needs a lot of focus and attention to detail so that we really are um, in a position to serve the customer, the end customer who's flying in the end, uh, to the same degree as before the inflationary environment started. So you mentioned the focus on the front of the airplane before, and Ben and I have talked a lot on the show about the rise of premium economy at airlines and airlines catering to upscale leisure passengers um, with better products, maybe not as good as business class, but priced closer to coach. Um, have you had to create a new class of meals to cater to that premium economy section, or is it pretty much just economy food with nicer dishes or uh, amenities? No, it's it's definitely, Scott, it's definitely a, a different class and a different meal type as well. It's a different price um, and, and cost level that is targeted there. And, um, and quite frankly, we have and are continuously developing innovative ways of, of, of finding meals that um, are um, exactly to the point of the price and cost class an airline chooses and the class that a certain traveler is in. And, and to give you some examples, I mean, we have basically an innovation lab, if that makes sense, an innovation chefs that don't do anything else than um, looking at trends in the industry, trends in the food side, um, and trying to, uh, to bring that to a, a level of scale that you can use it um, on 35, 36,000 feet in the air uh, mm-hmm. on a reheated basis. We are doing data science-like uh, um, social media listening checks uh, with a partner of ours to really understand what trends are out there and how can they be brought into the right class of the aircraft at the right price and cost point. So definitely it's not... I would, would call it pencil whipping uh, of, of an economy meal into a premium economy class. Um, there's clearly much, much more behind that. Good to know if I'm paying for premium economy. Well, Jens, I'm curious about the lounge business. It seems credit card companies are really getting into this game. And maybe they are clients for you, too. What do you see happening with lounges and the challenges with overcrowding and need to outdazzle the competition? Yeah, that's that's a really good point, Ben. Um, we are we are very uh, closely monitoring what's going on in that field, and I agree with you. Um, the interest of a lot of um, not necessarily center of the fairway companies and industry participants into this area is indeed very interesting. Uh, I would say it's all about customer centricity and and understanding what the customer wants and trying to make better use of that data and intelligence that you gain from that is is probably where I'm sitting and how I view it. It is around the net promoter scores um, uh, for the airlines and other companies uh, and, and to see how they rank against their um, uh, uh, comparatives and other uh, market participants. And um, we're focusing on this area because 
it's so close to to a, a centerpiece of, of our um, of our DNA, if you want, and that is hospitality. So um, whatever you get in a lounge is 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 so close to to the to the center of, of what is really needed, and even even a person that is serving in an uh, in an in a cold food environment always needs to, to bear in mind there's there's a passenger in the end um, who in, who tries to enjoy this. So the crowdedness part of your question, Ben, this is an interesting one because there's clearly um, limited space in airports, even though a lot of the airports in this country particularly um, are now expanding space and trying to, to make this um, more enjoyable for particularly the frequent flyers. And then the other piece um, that is clearly also interesting to see what's happening with all of the concessionary restaurants in, in, in comparison. Uh, therefore, um, how can they really uh, com compete with these or would want to compete with these? Um, this, these are very interesting questions and, um, and the answers we'll see how that goes. So Jens, there's been consolidation in the airline catering space. Gate Group acquired Surveyor from Air France in 2017 and the European operations of LSG Group in 2020. Where does competition come from these days? Do you, do you anticipate more consolidation? Uh, yeah, that's a good question, Scott. I mean, um, if uh, everyone's glass bowl is as good as yours and mine, but, you know, um, I clearly expect further movements, um, particularly in the North American market. What you have seen is movements of uh, outside of U.S. and North American caterers coming into the North American and South American market over the last five to 10 years, which has clearly changed the competitive environment in particularly certain airports of, of this country. I mean, there is airports like L.A. or JFK that meanwhile have six or seven caterers. Mm. which is probably not as healthy for a market like that for everyone that is there. There is, to your point, the LSG um, divestment from Lufthansa that is also ongoing for the rest of the world, where you can clearly expect some changes, at least from a shareholdership perspective. That doesn't necessarily mean it makes anything to their market behavior, but it's clearly yet to be seen. But clearly we are very focused on how that develops and um, uh, quite frankly, not actively participating here in the North American market because we are just too big um, that, that that would not cause any type of, uh, of antitrust or um, competition uh, investigations that would probably be too complicated. Um, but clearly uh, what we hear from the market and from the airlines is um, that they are um, actively observing what, what is going on there. And, and actively um, um, clearing what, what they are going to do next and, um, and how they want to adjust um, their balancing of their partner and supplier portfolio when it comes to in-flight catering. What do you see as the biggest growth opportunities for the gate group? And what keeps you up at night when you go to bed? <laughs> that's that's a really good question, Ben. Um, biggest growth opportunities, I would say, there are certain pockets in the in the airline markets and aviation markets that are clearly untapped. Um, certain uh, airlines that we serve less than others. Um, but when it really comes to growth opportunities, what what we are currently doing and seeing is, and, and we are actively diversifying 
our very, very much aviation-focused customer portfolio towards more a um, uh, food service and food solution-focused uh, uh, portfolio and customer base, meaning ready-to-go uh, meals in, in supermarkets, uh, grab-and-grow items like, like salads and sandwiches, which are, of course, relatively close to the center of the fairway and, and, and other productions for us. Uh, we can, we can in a lot of ways, even partially do out of the same uh, locations, but we are also trying to diversify this and clearly um, uh, uh, do it in a different location because it's, it's, a, it's a little bit of a different business, but we can use a lot of synergies and, and symbiotic um, DNA that we have from, the, from being a food company and being an hospitality company to basically diversifying that. So I would say food service is probably the biggest growth opportunity for us in the North American market. Hmm, very interesting. I'm curious if there are advances coming that would make food taste better at 35,000 feet. In that dry air and high altitude, taste buds get numbed. Is the experience likely to always be like that? Or is there some breakthrough that'll change that? Yeah, Scott, I mean, breakthrough, I don't know. Um, but we, as I, as I previously said already, I mean, we are very, very focused on I want to say alternative um, cooking techniques and alter alternative seasoning techniques. We are very, very far away from a salt will uh, solve everything um, uh, environment. Yeah. That that was basically the case for up until a decade or two ago. So um, I mean, our our innovation chef, Chef Molly, for example. I mean, she's she's really looking through what particular not salt like, but similar taste bud Im improvement or taste bud higher sensitivity provoking um, seasoning can you use and we're clearly um, looking into this because to your point it's it's really complicated and and challenging to um, provide a, a meal and taste experience in 35,000 feet uh, versus on the ground so I mean this is this is something where we put a lot of energy and, and innovative capacity in there. Well, before we let you go, Jens, let's have some fun. First, do you look good in a hairnet? I perfectly do. Absolutely. There's a lot of fun photos. And of course, every time I get to a unit, uh, I have to wear the oversized uh, lab coat and, and any type of colored hairnet. Absolutely. I'm sure that's true. <laughs> Do you have a favorite onboard meal? And if friends ask whether they should get the chicken or beef or pasta, what would you say? I've never received uh, that question. Uh, just <laughs> kidding, kidding aside, um, I would say I don't necessarily have a go-to meal indeed. To me, it's it's more interesting or it, how the overall travel experience is, I would say. So if you'd ask me, do I have a most memorable meal? Um, I would say I can't tell you what it was, but I can tell you on which flight it was, right? So I, I for example, my first flight with my family in the late 80s from Dusseldorf, Germany to Monastir, Tunisia on our um, first uh, air, air flight holiday trip. I, I definitely remember that. And, um, and more recently, um, uh, a couple of years ago, I got upgraded on a lake uh, transcon um, from the west to the east where I didn't expect the upgrade. And, and the, between the meal service 
and particularly the the flight attendant service and the attention and and and, and gentleness and, and and friendliness of of the crew um, that was a very memorable meal respectively flight as well chicken or pasta whatever you like i would say so um, generally i think every food you get uh, in an aircraft is is good to good to eat well, that's great. Jens, you've given us a lot to chew on, and we really appreciate it. It's been great to have you on Airlines Confidential. Thank you. Thank you very much, Scott and Ben. It was really a pleasure to be here. Thank you. And we'll be right back with more Airlines Confidential. Promotional consideration by thearchive.net, the hub of the history of commercial aviation. Thearchive.net is now boarding. Thanks again to Jens for a delicious discussion of food, lounges, logistics, and so much more. Ben, in this week's mailbag is a reminder that we really do have the best, smartest listeners out there. Mary from Georgia wrote with a fabulous point about Delta earnings and really all big airline earnings. She says, I love your show, the format, and the impressive lineup of guests that you interview every week. I feel like I'm getting free college credits by having access to your show. My question is about Delta's earnings for the second quarter. Obviously, it was an impressive quarter for Delta, with $2.2 billion in pre-tax income adjusted, with a record $1.7 billion remuneration coming from American Express credit card. Does the fact that Delta earns more from American Express than they do from airline ticket sales pose a risk to Delta at some point? Or is American Express a cash cow that will keep on giving? Ben, Mary flags a huge issue for the industry. Big airlines are really loyalty programs that happen to have wings. We saw this in the pandemic. Airlines were able to mortgage their frequent flyer programs, which in many cases were far more valuable than the airline itself. And interestingly, there has been a small and surely unsuccessful effort by a few in Congress to try to limit credit card rewards. Credit card companies charge a swipe fee of a couple of percent on the purchase, and then customers get some of that back in rewards. But it's not an even distribution. Wealthy customers get more of the reward largesse. Even in the pandemic, when people weren't traveling, they stuck with their airline reward credit cards. Quote, unquote, free travel is an incredibly powerful incentive. And yes, Mary, I think the cash cow for airlines will continue. American Express, Chase, City, Barclays, they all need airline miles to give to their customers. When the economy is growing, that business will continue to grow. The risk is that it probably exaggerates a downturn. Not only will people reduce their flying, but they'll reduce their credit card spend and banks won't be buying as many miles from airlines. A double whammy for airlines. Then again, we saw American Express prop up Delta in the past by pre-purchasing miles when Delta needed cash. Banks need airlines. Airlines need banks. Ben, you've been inside these programs and deals. What do you think? You laid it out well, Scott. That's exactly right. The fact is, people want free travel as an aspiration 
even if they're not going to take that many trips, but just thinking about maybe I'll get this free trip makes them use their airline cards more. And banks have realized that when they have an airline affinity with their cards, the cards are more profitable than their cards without that affinity. So you're right. The banks need the airlines, but the airlines need the banks too. I think these programs are going to continue for a long while. The programs in many cases, kind of stand on their own, except for the fact that they're tied to the operation of the company. But let me ask, is there anyone with a Delta credit card that when they went to get gas yesterday said, maybe I shouldn't use this card because they had this plane on the ramp at Vegas? Right? I just don't think people associate their credit card usage to the real day-to-day stuff going on in the industry. But instead, the positive earnings of the industry and the strong growth in leisure traffic says that the credit card world is going to continue to support this. And it's true not only with the airlines, but in the hospitality space as well. And Ben, do you think this is another area where the big airlines really have an advantage over smaller airlines? I I imagine it's harder for a smaller airline to build up that that powerful frequent flyer uh, loyalty card uh, that's always going to be first out of the wallet. And is is this a way that the big airlines, uh, you know, it's sort of the, the modern version of gate hoarding, um, where big airlines can stomp on smaller competitors because they have a bigger advantage with loyalty programs? It's a good point, Scott. And I think it matters for some customers, but not all customers. It's also a way for the big guys to stomp on each other in a place like Louisville or Kansas City that aren't dominated by one particular airline, but you can connect in Atlanta, Dallas, or Chicago. And so the credit card, along with your flight schedule, becomes part of what you can do to ingratiate people into your ecosystem. Hmm, Really fascinating. Well, Scott, John from Cincinnati has a merger question. John says, hello, Ben and Scott. I wanted to follow up on your interesting discussion about the complexities of implementing past U.S. airline mergers. Yes, there are lots of hurdles to overcome, but from a big picture perspective, mergers often make good business sense. So I'd love your thoughts on a merger that to me just does not make any sense, Air France KLM. There have been none of the efficiencies you'd expect, 
such as consolidated management, fleet commonalities, purchasing advantages, elimination of duplicate routes, and the unthinkable, the dropping of redundant hubs. There are now three CEOs in charge, and the companies remain fiercely independent. What are the benefits of this merger? It seems like things might go more smoothly if they go their separate ways. Thank you and keep up the good work. What do you think about this, Scott? Are Air France, KLM really missing something? Well, I think they may be. I, I When I look at Lufthansa Group, I think maybe they've done a better job of, of running uh, a, a basket of airlines. Um, but cross-border mergers are always tougher because you have to maintain the nationality of the airline for traffic rights. KLM can't be a French company because it wouldn't have the route authority that it gets as a Dutch airline. Open Skies treaties have made some of that easier, but not much. I do think there are advantages to the holding company system, like Lufthansa. You can get better deals on aircraft purchases with bigger orders and move airplanes around. But aviation is still different from other industries. You know, Apple can sell products just about anywhere, right? Same for Samsung or SAP or Volkswagen or telephone companies or banks. But KLM can't fly anywhere it wants, nor can Air France or any other airline. Countries want to have their own airlines, so they insist on national ownership, and it results in a whole lot of inefficiencies, exactly as John noted. That's exactly right. That said, though, Scott, I'm surprised at some of John's allegations, and I don't doubt that he's exactly right, but I don't see why Air France KLM couldn't combine certain things like sales or revenue management or advertising or maintenance programs or things like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. All right. One more for you, Ben. Kyle from DFW writes with a Ben question. Hi, Ben and Scott. Love the show and have been a longtime listener throughout my aviation career, which has included time working in the airlines. A few weeks ago, you touched on the operational challenges of United Airlines ahead of the July 4th weekend, and we're all familiar with the recent challenges that Southwest experienced during the holiday season, too. Obviously, a number of factors can ignite a chain reaction of challenges for any airline's operation, both internally and externally i.e. ATC, FAA, weather, airline staffing, outdated systems, etc. And no one is immune from these. My question for Ben, based on his experience as CEO of Spirit, is what advice does he have for other airline leaders and aspiring aviation leaders to help them in preparing their organizations to mitigate the impacts when these meltdowns arise, both during and after an event like United and Southwest experienced. Love the show and appreciate the insights you both provide to this great industry. Well, thank you, Kyle. I'm not sure I could teach anyone anything about this, Kyle. But what I will say is the airlines who over time do this better than others 
get ahead of the problem in advance. They may pre-cancel some flights going into weather, or they just don't let a situation get too far down the road before they're making active decisions to control and minimize the disruption caused by that event. We saw a failure of that in Vegas with Delta, but that doesn't mean that Delta isn't normally quite good at this. So the key is the airline can't change the weather. They can't change the air traffic control hold. They have to deal with the realities of crews and availability and things. So the key is how flexible can they be? Now you can take the extreme and say for every pilot, we're going to have a backup and every airplane, we're going to have a backup so that you essentially double all your resource to handle situations. But that would be financially disastrous and no airline could work that way for very long because they would just lose way too much money. So the issue is how much flexibility do you put in the schedule? How many lazy airplanes are you willing to have scheduled, meaning a plane that only flies four or five hours a day so it's available to cover something that might go wrong later in the day? And every airline's got to decide what its balance is there. So I don't know that, like I said, Kyle, that I can help anyone on this, but it comes from taking a very realistic view of what you can and can't control and an aggressiveness and proactiveness to own the situations early. Yeah, it's a great point, Ben. And I think I think those equations are changing. I, I think climate change has created more severe storms that make these situations uh, more difficult and and require more resources in terms of um, reserve crew backup uh, airplanes. I think social media and you know now that everyone is a is a TV producer sitting in the cabin with a with a high definition recording device, um, it it means that whatever happens is going to end up on national TV and all. And, and maybe you have to decide, you know, we, we will certainly survive the, the Las Vegas incidents or the, the Newark meltdown that, that United have and, and go on and we'll take the hit. Um, we can't afford to avoid that. Uh, but uh, maybe you also say, you know what, we have to be more creative and we have to be quicker. And I do think these situations uh, can sort of be a, a huge win for airlines. If if Delta had said, you know what, the APU is not working on this airplane, we're going to go back to the gate, we're going to get a spare airplane flown in from Salt Lake City or wherever, and we're going to get you people to Atlanta tonight, uh, then people would have been really grateful uh, for that effort on the airline. 
Now, maybe there wasn't a spare airplane, spare crew, what, whatever, but uh, I just think airlines uh, sometimes get tunnel vision and they're only looking at, at that one flight or that one hub or whatever. And there's got to be more flexibility uh, and creativity into this art of running an airline operation. Well, that's all for Airlines Confidential this week. Thanks again to Jens Kulin for a great discussion. Have a great week, everyone. We'll talk to you next week. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.